From West to East and Kingdom to Kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Limited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 222 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? Oh, hoy, hoy, Michael. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Okay. You always say hoy, hoy on the show, on the Walt Disney World show and all that. What does it mean? What is that a reference to? It is a reference to uh, The Simpsons. That is how uh, C. Montgomery Burns, Mr. Burns, uh, Uh who runs the power plant, that's how he answers the phone. But that's a joke about how old he is, because apparently that's how Alexander Graham Bell answered the phone that he invented and that's true so that was um the the joke was mr burns is so old that that's how he would answer the phone when he would talk to bell on the phone so it's i stole it because it's brilliant and i don't think enough people actually address other people by it but when we were on our podcast cruise i will say a lot of people would come up to me and say ahoy hoy and nothing else and I actually, I, I wish I could just keep that going. When you see me, let's not have a conversation. Just say ahoy hoy, and then we'll like tip our hats to each other, and we know we're in the same club. <laughs> so basically, you're saying don't talk to me. <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course, come up and talk to me too. But I do. If, if you say ahoy hoy, at least I know we're in that same club right away. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, right. you're you're dedicated. You clearly listen to connecting with Walt because you just heard me say that I want you to say that. <laughs> there you go. Okay. I don't watch enough of The Simpsons in order to. Uh, remember all that that's that's a show i think i'm going to binge watch something i'm done with all the other shows i'm binge watching right now i'm watching um oh the really bad one on hulu (laughs) what what are they oh gosh i can't think of it Uh, the dog is it seth mcfarland family Family guy Guy, family guy i i am sort of slowly binge watching that now and i think how did he ever get away with some of this stuff yeah but (laughs) he's a great sense of humor I, I I like him. I know he's not everyone's favorite uh, favorite comedian. I specifically love American Dad. I think that's probably the best of his cartoons he've done. Mm-hmm. But I'm like I'm also that weirdo that everyone hated the Million Ways to Die in the West movie, and I watch it probably like once a year. Just laugh that. my butt out. It's huh. it's awful, but it's <laughs> it has just a couple funny moments that like that really seal the deal for me. Well, I, um, yeah, I, I love the Orville, which is now back and on Hulu that he does. And it's really well done, in my opinion. Although the first episode is very controversial, the returning episode. But so people are either happy about it or not. But it dealt with a couple of difficult topics in the way that like, old Trek, old Star Trek would have done. They put it in a science fiction, you know, um, environment Mm. and but it was issues that people struggle with 
and have been confronted with. And I thought they did it in a very sensitive way, and which is how old Trek used to do it. So I, I'm excited. It was really to, well done. Yeah, no, I, I'm excited to 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 watch it. I still have to finish mm-hmm. the last. I, I have to get through like half of the last season because mm-hmm. I just fell off of it. And then once I finish like ten other shows, it's on my list. I'm going to get to okay. it. Okay, okay, you'll like it. So, well, speaking of watching television shows and old movies that we like, um, when I was a boy growing up in San Francisco. California, it was common for some neighborhood movie theaters to show a double bill of family films during the summer. And they did this in the morning before their standard showtimes. The films would change daily. If if it was a daily um, theater that ran new films every day, they usually only had one family film. But some did it weekly, usually midweek, and then they would have a double bill of family films and we throw in some cartoons and stuff. Um, and then along with that, um, librarians in the neighborhood public library would visit schools shortly before summer vacation to promote their, their library summer reading clubs. And you'd get little small prizes like, um, coupons from neighborhood businesses for like a free ice cream cone or something. And if you completed reading a certain number of books, um, and they had recommended ones for every grade level, um, a certificate bearing your name would be displayed in a library. And this is how I saw many classic Disney films was this in the movie theaters during the summer when they would have these special showings. Um, and it was, so I saw these films in a short period of time without waiting for a seven year re-release schedule and also films that were not on Disney's um, re-release schedule were in that as well, as well as you know, animated films from, you know, cartoon studios that had long gone out of business and all that. And that's how I saw like the, the old Gulliver's Travels, you know, film and all that in the theater, because that was all part of this. But seeing these Disney films, especially the live action films, kindled my love of literature. So one summer when I was around 10 years old, I saw several classic Walt Disney live action films at San Francisco's Coliseum Theater on Clement Street, which is gone. Um, and I enjoyed them so much that I went to my parents and I told them I would like to read the books on which the films were based. And this was much to my parents' delight. So after seeing these films, I'd go to the Anza Branch Public Library that was in the edge of my neighborhood. And I checked out the books one by one and read them. And I included them as part of my summer reading club, um, you know, for, um, you know, that I was working on. So I would add them to that in order to get my certificate and coupons and stuff. So at the time, these were books my father thought all boys should read, even though they could be enjoyed equally by boys and girls. And he would have me not only discuss the books with him, but I would even have to write up little small book reports for him on these. So that was my summer one year. And so um, then when I was at university taking classes for my teaching credential, I discovered that few in my class had ever read the original fairy tales and novels on which Walt Disney had based his films, because we we took some books that were um, or courses that were like seminars on the psychology of fantasy and fairy tales and legends and all this kind of stuff. And we quickly, the teacher 
first day realized people don't read the original stories anymore. I was the only one that had. And, uh, and, and so inspired by this and by my childhood experience, what we're doing starting today is a series talking about these films that inspired me to read the books in the hope that you will not only watch these films as a family, but you'll also want to read the books as a family and discuss them around the dinner table. So we are starting out with one of my very favorites, Walt Disney's 1950 live-action film, Treasure Island. So, Craig, I know you've seen this film many times. Yes. And uh, just rewatched it earlier today before we started recording, just so I could be refreshed mm-hmm. one more time on it. But uh, the the one beautiful part of Treasure Island, including uh, the the very first of the iterations, uh, they all pretty well follow the story in general. Um, all the all the different iterations, you know. It's, mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, when you make a Muppets musical out of one, it's not going to follow the exact it's, same way. But yes, <laughs> uh, but or when you base it in outer space. outer space, it's not going to. But the the characters are still there, and for the most part, and it's the same the same beats, the same uh, the same distrust, the same na- naive. Uh, mm-hmm side to it it's it's all it's all still there so that's like the one thing i think is kind of cool because they can go all these different ways with adaptations and fortunately when it comes to treasure island they stick pretty close so even if you've only seen like two of them uh you you could pretty much guess what happens in every single one of them Yeah, yeah and i in preparation for this episode i have watched four versions of Treasure Island. So I feel I am pretty well versed on the film <laughs> versions of this, of this, um, this novel. So many. And all that. And I, and I've even gone in and started to look at Treasure Island. I started skimming through the book and thought, okay, I've got to reread this book because it just drew me in. Yeah. Right away. I, I have not read it. So I was, um, you know, I knew we talked about doing this series and I, I knew that we were going to get to this one first. Uh, but I, for the rest of them, I'm hoping I can get the books read and the movies watched. So mm-hmm. that way I can have the, the thorough conversation with it. But you're going to, you're going to have to do a little extra work on top of watching four movies. But. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, definitely. So, Treasure Island, if you have not read the book, imagine being a young child or a young boy like me and, and the chill that ran through me when I read the second, um, I think it was like the second chapter, a second paragraph, I can't remember which, to Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. And it starts out, and this is a quote, I remember him as if it were yesterday, as he came plodding to the inn door, his sea chest following behind him in a hand barrow, a tall, strong, heavy, nut-brown man, his tarry pigtail falling over the shoulder of his soiled blue coat, his hands ragged and scarred, with black broken nails and the saber cut across one cheek, a dirty, livid white. I remember him looking round the cove and whistling to himself as he did so, then breaking out into that old sea song that he sang so often afterwards. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest, yo-ho-ho, and a bottle of rum. So that 
just pulled me right into the story. And I couldn't put that book down. And I was transported into a world filled with high sea adventure, buried treasure, and pirates. So, you know, what child reading this book doesn't imagine themselves being in the place of Jim Hawkins, our young protagonist and the hero of the book seeking buried pirate treasure? So Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island first appeared in the Young Folks magazine as a serial under the title The Sea Cook in October 1881, and it would be published in book form as Treasure Island by Castle & Co. in London. Now, the story's appeal to youngsters was recognized by the American publisher Charles Scribner's Sons when it published a book in the United States in 1911 with illustrations by N.C. Wyeth. So Stevenson began the novel with a drawing um, of the map of the fictional Treasure Island, which was recreated in the film, and most of the plot and characters came into his mind whilst he was filling in the details of this map he had created. So seafaring books about military men, pirates, and explorers were all popular during the 1800s. And Stevenson borrowed themes and ideas from many of those books, such as Robinson Crusoe, that came before his. Stevenson later revealed that poet and critic William Ernest Henley, who was a very talkative man and had only one leg, was the model for Long John Silver. Many of the stereotypical characteristics we associate with pirates came from Treasure Island, including treasure maps with an X to mark the spot and parrots on soldiers, shoulders and peg legs and tropical locales and the black spot. So film studios quickly recognized that this book was made for the cinema. So the Edison Company produced the first film version in 1912, with the Fox version produced in 1918, starring an all-children's cast. And I heard, though, that that, the Fox version was lost in a fire Mm -hmm. at their studio lot. Um, a 1920 production of Treasure Island was made by Paramount Studio with Lon Chaney at starring as Blind Pew and Charles Ogle playing Long John Silver. Now, MGM's 1934 version set the tone for all future versions of Treasure Island. Its own visual style for pirates was heavily influenced by N.C. Wyatt's illustrations and Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates that was published in 1921. The film was directed by Victor Fleming. Of course, we all know him as, you know, director of Wizard of Oz is probably one of his greatest um, achievements. And it starred Jackie Cooper as Jim Hawkins, Lionel Barrymore as Billy Bones, Wallace Beery as Long John Silver, Louis Stone as Captain Smollett, and Nigel Bruce as Squire Trelawney, and Otto Kruger as Dr. Um, Livesey. Now, this... These were all huge actors back in the 1930s. So the film plot follows the novel very closely and is considered by many critics to be the definitive film version of the story, even though the studio employed American actors for the film. So as you can see, the book and film versions were well known before Walt Disney showed interest in the film. And this 1934 version is available. You can stream it. Um, it's like, cause that's what I did. It's like $2.99 to rent and $6.99 to buy. It is thoroughly enjoyable. It is, it is great. You, 
you know, in the Disney version, they sort of jump right in to the action, whereas the 1934 version sets the stage. You're there at, 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 um, at the inn and you meet, you meet Jack Hawkins' mother and all the people that come and go, sort of the denizens of the Admiral Benbow Inn. And you, um, and, and then the pirates start coming in and all this stuff. So there's a huge lead up to when the action really begins. And, uh, it's, it's really, really well done. This is, I would say this is, this film is definitely worth watching because you can see, uh, how it, it's, it really was the inspiration for all the films that came after. I have not watched this one before. So I need to add that to my list on like a rainy weekend to go ahead and, and actually purchase it and, and, and give it a watch because yeah. uh, you, you sold me on it here. <laughs> yeah. You're really going to like it. It is very well done. However, you might be surprised to learn that at first Walt Disney was not all that interested in making Treasure Island. As we discussed in our previous episode about the history of Disneyland's Tom Sawyer Island, Walt Disney loved Mark Twain's The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and that is the film he wanted to make. According to Treasure Island's director, Byron Haskin, in an interview that he gave before his passing, um, he said, uh, quote, Walt had always been in love with Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer, but there was an agreement among major producers for story material in public domain. If a company was first in line with a claim, they were given priority. Each year they had to maintain a certain amount of expense for story development, securing the rights. But it was an agreement amongst the major producers. Walt had always wanted Treasure Island in the worst way, but David Selznick had prior rights as producer for MGM. MGM also had the rights to Treasure Island, as well as a lot of other things. So Walt put in a kind of shotgun claim for all material not claimed or delinquent. MGM carefully maintained rights to Tom Sawyer, but one year they slipped and didn't develop Treasure Island. Suddenly, Disney became the possessor. What the hell do I do with this, he asked. I want Tom Sawyer, not Treasure Island. So they threw it in the vault, unquote. So even when Disney Walt got the rights, he did not make the film right away. Yeah. So... So a few years later, Lawrence Edward Watkin, he was a script writer at the Walt Disney Studio, he was looking for a project. He had just completed writing the narration for the True Life Adventure film Seal Island. So he went down to the story department and he checked out the properties for which Walt Disney held the rights. And Watkin discovered the studio held the rights to Treasure Island and he decided to write a treatment. Walt read the treatment, loved it and had storyboards created for the script as an animated film. However, for several reasons, Walt later decided to produce Treasure Island as a live-action film. One was that Walt felt that an animated version would be a challenge for his animators to meet his high standards for this film, and it could take several years to produce. Another reason is that after World War II, England imposed restrictions on film profits, The Marshall Plan was an American initiative to help European countries devastated by the war with rebuilding, and one of its tenets was that profits made from films shown in a country had to stay in that country. 
This meant that Walt Disney's animated films that had made millions in the United Kingdom couldn't leave the British Isles. So Walt decided he would make films in England. So Walt determined it would be too expensive to set up a new animation studio in England, equal to the one in Burbank, so he decided to make a live-action version of Treasure Island. Treasure Island would be Walt Disney's first completely live-action film without any animation when shooting began in 1949. But it was also the first film for the company made entirely outside of the United States. Filming took place largely in Cornwall, Devon, Bristol, and Ivor Heath, whilst all studio work was done at Denham Film Studios in Buckinghamshire. Much of the film was also shot at sea, making it an expensive and difficult shoot. The scenes on the Hispaniola were filmed aboard the Rylands, a real 19th century schooner. RKO, which had distributed Walt Disney's films in the past, became a partner production company with the Disney Studio because they also had funds frozen in England. So they formed RKO Walt Disney British Productions Limited. Hmm. I will say, uh, just uh, before we get too far into this, too, Mm -hmm. I I don't know how you feel, but I I can't see Walt Disney animation of this time period working at all for treasure island like it, mm-hmm. it seemed like it had to be destined to be a live action film and i i mean and that that's a good thing it's something that i i feel like walt really had to dive into eventually uh just for profitability purposes and you know how how to be able to tell different stories that just don't necessarily fit well with the the medium of animation but at the same time too i did notice uh watching this time around while i think it is a very tight movie you can also definitely tell that it's it was one of the studio's first uh forays into a full-length live action movie of of this caliber because there's there's a lot of things that show like they're they're trying tricks that they don't have perfected yet in terms of uh in terms of camera angles in terms of you know shooting stuff in broad daylight but trying to color time it to look Mm -hmm. like it's nighttime and little things like that but uh definitely uh you know it regardless of that it was the right decision to definitely go with live action I agree with you. And the interesting thing is, in my research, I found out that they storyboarded this as an animated film. Some of that was used when they made the animated version of Robin Hood. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so who knows what this treasure island was going to look like? So, but the studio immediately encountered production problems, and this was all due to Walt choosing American child actor Bobby Driscoll to portray Jim Hawkins. He was the only American actor in the film. Walt did this because he believed Driscoll would help bring in American audiences to see the film after Driscoll's successful appearances in Song of the South and So Dear to My Heart. However, Even one American actor was too much for the British government. So it invoked a rarely enforced law that prohibited any child under the age of 14 to work in a motion picture made in England. The government attempted to prosecute the studio. 
All this despite the fact that the British government did not apply this child labor restriction for British films like The Fallen Idol, Oliver Twist, and Great Expectations, all great classic films, and they all featured child actors. The controversy was instigated by a disgruntled prop man who had been dismissed, and he filed the complaint about Bobby Driscoll. However, the complaint was not about Driscoll violating the child labor restriction. Instead, the complaint was that an American citizen was working without a work permit. The reason for this is that Bobby Driscoll was a child, and he wasn't old enough to require a work permit. So... Disney studio producer Bill Walsh remembered that the British government was against using American child actors. And Walsh said, quote, We had to shoot everything in the back of a truck and make our moves like a floating crap game. They were constantly trying to throw us in the can because we were using an American kid in the picture, unquote. And this was true because the can for our younger listeners, that's just a, a, another word for jail. Um, but the head of the Disney Studios London office, Cyril James, was briefly jailed for this offense. So, finally, the British government ordered the deportation of Bobby Driscoll. And according to director Byron Haskin, the studio stalled for a time so filming could be completed. So this is what he said, quote, Walt contrived a defense that he, meaning Bobby, was an American citizen. Therefore, he wasn't subject to British child labor laws, which, of course, the judge laughed off, unquote. So the judge fined Driscoll, his father, and the studio 100 pounds each, but agreed to allow Driscoll to remain in the country for six weeks, but not to work on the film, but for the studio to mount an appeal. So again, according to Haskin, quote, we grabbed him, meaning Bobby, and threw him on a stage. I had to shoot little Jim Hawkins out of that picture in six weeks, from beginning to end, doing close-ups with all the other actors present for backgrounds or offstage voices. I finished Bobby Driscoll in six weeks. Then we went back to court with him all dressed up, and the judge said, get out of England, unquote. The irate appeals court judge declared that the actor, his father, and the production company had, quote, brazenly flouted British law, unquote. An article in Variety reported that the Disney studio had spent approximately $84,000 to rearrange the, the shooting schedule in order to complete Driscoll's work before the appeal was heard. So, and that is a lot of money back in the ni- late 1940s oh, yeah. there. I mean. It's a lot of money today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but Driscoll left England and the rest of the company continued production. So now with Driscoll deported, Haskin had to begin the film all over again using an English boy who was younger than Driscoll as his double. Haskin had to fill in all the longer shots and other action with and without Driscoll since his close-ups had already been shot. So many of the wide shots that are supposed to be Driscoll are really his body double. So now when you watch this film, see if you can figure out which which is Bobby and which is this little boy. I I was going to say. I, I want to go back and watch it again immediately because I did not read your script before we did this. So <laughs> this was completely news for me, something I've never noticed in any of the watchings. But 
I mean, that just makes this even more of a technical feat that they were able to get this done. Uh, like, I, I, I'm blown away by it that they were actually able to finish it under those conditions. Like, just mm-hmm. good for them. I know. And that might explain some of the um, issues you brought up a few moments ago. Uh, yeah. Colors not matching, you know, things like that, because they were shooting in such a, a piecemeal way. No, that is a very, very good possibility. That would explain a lot from uh, what what I was noticing with some of the the weird the weird angles, transitions, cuts, etc. Like that would make a lot of sense. So yeah, I'm gonna have to watch it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Haskin commented on the complications that resulted from this. So, quote, nobody but a technician like myself could ever have kept it straight. If it hadn't been for my own technical ingenuity, I'm sure the picture would have been a mess, unquote. Now, despite his ingenuity, Haskin still felt that the film suffered from a lack of smoothness of characterization and dimension due to how they were forced to complete filming. So he, for instance, took the apple barrel scene as an example. Bobby hiding in the apple barrel was filmed separately, and Haskin felt that that created a lack of cohesion within this scene. So it was Treasure Island that brought English artist Peter Ellenshaw to the Walt Disney Studio. Ellenshaw, who studied matte painting under his stepfather, um, master matte and special effects artist W. Percy Day, was contacted by the film's art director, Tom Morahan, who asked Ellen Schaff, who's interested in doing a few mats for Walt Disney. And in his autobiography, Ellen Shaw recalled the impact it would have on his life. Quote, maybe there would only be a few mats, Morahan said. Not worth your time. Not at all. I thought to work for Disney, even for a short time, was certainly worth my time. This was to change my whole life, and yet it seemed just a small job at the time. Unquote. As production on the film progressed, the production team realized they were going to need a lot more mats than originally intended, with Ellen Shaw painting 40 or more mats in the film. So due to the large number of mats required, Ellen Shaw explained, quote, I had to thoroughly understand the technique. So in the future, I would be able to set up a department to do mats and color at my studio, unquote. And Ellen Shaw went on to work on a huge number of Disney films with his mat work. So. Walt was not as hands-on with this production as he had been with his previous films and would be with his future live-action films. And he only visited the filming locations periodically. However, he made the most of his time when he was in England. Walt was pleased with what he saw. And upon his return to Burbank, following one of his trips, he even poked a little fun at his animators. And Walt said, quote, those actors over there in England, they're great, um, joked Walt to his animation staff. You give them the lines, they rehearse it a couple of times, and you've got it on film. It's finished. You guys take six months to draw a scene. Unquote. All the trouble with the British government concerning Bobby Driscoll led Walt to drop his idea of bringing Driscoll back into the country to be part of a live-action Robin Hood film. Walt's plan was to produce a new version of Robin Hood starring Driscoll as a young boy who joins Robin's band of merry men. 
Walt did produce a Robin Hood film, but changed it to be a romantic drama without children. I think that probably worked out for the best. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It's it's fun. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, I like it. It's It's a good film. Many may argue that the sex, the success of the film lies with Robert Newton's portrayal of the one-legged pirate, Long John Silver. Newton had a reputation for being a temperamental actor, but he was well-known um, on stage and in films at the time. Byron Haskin decided the best way to obtain Newton's cooperation was to help him feel enthusiasm for the production. So he solicited his assistance with production problems and also with the casting of an actor for the role of Ben Gunn. According to Haskin, Newton was hungover when they first met. So Haskin sent Newton on a fishing trip in Ireland for a week. Newton returned tanned, refreshed, full of good ideas, and sober. Haskin consulted with Newton on production problems and set Newton off in search of a good character actor for the Ben Gunn role. Craig, you'll be interested in this. They almost signed a young actor named Alec Guinness, but he was contracted for run of the play at the Savoy Theater. So just think, Obi-Wan Kenobi might have made his debut with Disney as Ben Gunn. If he I, that would have been, been insane. But, you know, it's <laughs> things worked out well for Alec Guinness anyways. They did. They did. And the, and the actor who played Ben Gunn was terrific in that role. Oh, yeah. Although Haskin was happy with Newton's performance as a team player, he was less enthusiastic about Newton's on-screen performance, believing the actor produced up to half potential. Haskin attributed Newton's problems to alcohol having an advanced hold on the actor. When the camera rolled, Newton became mechanical in his acting. Said Newton, or said Haskin, quote, Silver was a complex role. All of the early scenes with the little boy were like father and son. They were tender, sensitive scenes. In rehearsals, I would just drool. I lived in the expectation of getting some outstanding scenes. But the minute the camera would start, he would stiffen and the charm vanished. He gave a performance, but never one with that original genius shown in the rehearsals, unquote. So that's a shame. It would be interesting. It's too bad they weren't running the camera and we at least had those outtakes of the rehearsals. Yeah. Granted, we wouldn't have a lot of access to them anymore, but it would be great. Maybe they would have appeared on a DVD at some point. Potentially, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Robert Newton's use of an exaggerated West Country Cornish accent in the film has become the iconic pirate accent in all subsequent pirate movies. The legacy of his role is still seen today in the Walt Disney Studios' more recent Pirates of the Caribbean film franchise, and Newton is considered to be the patron saint of International Talk Like a Pirate Day, which is celebrated on September 19th. The old sea song of Billy Bones that was featured prominently in the original book and the 1934 film version was revised for Walt's films. New words were composed for the Yo-Ho song, Dropping and a Bottle of Rum. Walt's version of Treasure Island was the first to be filmed in color. 
Although the 1934 black and white version made good use of light and shadow and was more faithful to the novel, color opens up the film, adding a lushness to the scenes on the high sea and on the tropical island. Much was done to promote the film, with the most ambitious being a countrywide treasure hunt in the United States that involved more than 400 retailers in 30 cities. The Walt Disney Studio provided merchandise along with a treasure map, and children could collect items from participating stores to win prizes. The studio paid out over $250,000 in prizes. Now, the BBC aired a serial story, uh, a serial of the story with vocal excerpts from Driscoll and used music from the film. The film had its premiere in London on June 2nd, 1950, and was released to a wider audience on July 29th. According to the June 1950 article in the English trade paper Daily Film Renter, Treasure Island was to have its ocean premiere during the Queen Mary's transatlantic crossing between July 1st, 1950, and it would also be shown aboard the Queen Elizabeth until July 27th, 1950. The film ended up being a smash hit for Walt Disney, with critical reception mostly positive. It would go on to gross a box office total of $4.8 million worldwide on a $1.8 million budget. The film was particularly popular in England, where it was the sixth most popular film at the British box office in 1950. But British film critics weren't fond of Driscoll in the film, seemingly because of him being an American. British critics also considered it a watered-down version of Treasure Island. Thomas M. Pryor of the New York Times called the film a grand and glorious entertainment that captures the true spirit of the novel. Variety praised the film for its sumptuous set pieces and a virtual tour de force performance by Newton. Sophie, Sonia Stein of the Washington Post wrote that the film was like a treasure chest of precious stones with some of the most beautiful color photography ever shot. Harrison's reports called it a first-rate adventure melodrama that should thrill young and old alike, whilst Philip Hamburger of The New Yorker called it absolutely first-class, mounted in technicolor with such meticulous and imaginative care that I had the feeling throughout that I was watching a handsome, illustrated edition of the book come to life. The monthly film bulletin was less positive, however, calling the production values serviceable rather than imaginative, and finding Driscoll to be unmistakably 20th century American in this context, and insufficiently an actor to have much shot, uh, much of a shot at Jim. Much praise was given to Newton's performance, which would lead him to being typecast for more pirate roles in the future. This role defined the rest of his career, and he would play a series of pirates till his passing in 1956 due to complications from alcoholism. Production of Treasure Island used up all of the frozen funds the studio had in England following the war, but the film's success led Walt to return to England to produce more films. Several great English actors, including Peter Finch and Sean Connery, made their debuts in Disney films. 
Businesses capitalized on the success and recognition of the film with Long John Silver's fast food restaurants and Admiral Benbow's inns popping up across the country. And I looked up Admiral Benbow's, and there's still a few that are around, um, they're, but they're now called Benbow Historic Inn. But whatever happened to Long John Silver's, we'll never know. I know. Aren't they still around? Oh, are yeah, they, they gone are. now? No, no yeah. they are. Yeah. <laughs> they, we don't. They, ha- we don't have any in our area. Yeah, I. I mean, it, it's definitely not like it was in the '90s and 2000s. I mean, I feel like that was a, a pinnacle time for it. But you know, they're 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 still around in uh, in full force, just not everywhere. My my parents, when we got fish and chips, there was a, a British pub in our neighborhood where we would get them from. The only time we ever went to a seafood chain to get fish and chips, it was called H. Salt Esquire Fish and Chips. But my parents are less impressed with those. Yeah, I mean, we, <laughs> we grew up going to Long John Silver's because that was the... The only thing. I mean, growing up in Western Pennsylvania, you know, it's not like we're getting a lot of fresh fish from uh, places. If we would have maybe went to uh, to downtown Pittsburgh, we would have been able to to get some, but not not right where we were. So it was uh, it was Long John Silver's, and you know, th- then everything changed when it became a Long John Silver's slash A and W. So now you oh, have no. your floats and. Uh, your your good fried fish. <laughs> but knows when when counter service restaurants like that do that split, it's never as good. <laughs> no, it, it's yeah. not. It's not. The only thing I will accept is when it's a Taco Bell, but mostly a Taco Bell, and they just add like a little pizza oven to have Pizza Hut pizza too. But that's oh. <laughs> we could do a whole other show on this that has nothing yeah, to do with Disney. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. Treasure Island was aired on television in 1955 on the Walt Disney's Disneyland television series before it would be reissued theatrically in 1975. The MPAA asked for cuts to be made to the film in order to achieve a G rating. The MPAA voluntary film rating system wouldn't be implemented until 1968, so they didn't have the rating system when Treasure Island was first released. The MPAA thought that the film contained just enough violence for a PG rating, which the Walt Disney Studio was vehemently against. PG at that time really did mean that you needed parental guidance back in the day. Uh, In fact, you had to like produce a note at some of the theaters in my neighborhood from your parents to get in to the movie. They were really strict. So this would have tarnished Disney's family-friendly reputation. So Disney begrudgingly agreed to cut to cuts to the film to achieve a G rating. Yeah. The film was released on video in its edited form in 1981 and 86, but restored to its original form for the 1991 release. But unfortunately for Disney, they forgot to change the rating on the videotapes to PG and got in trouble with the MPAA. Disney had to send out stickers to cover up the G rating. The Walt Disney Productions would relax their no PG ratings on films in the late 1970s. They would end up retroactively having their very first fully live action film be rated PG. And of course, now the film is um, available on Disney Plus. Yeah, uh, you know what? I I think it deserves its PG rating, and I'm not 
I, I you know, yeah, we, we could make a solid argument for it being G, but uh, like, I always forget how terrifying it is when Jim is kind of like up in the, uh, up in mm-hmm. the sales and is confronted to make a decision and ultimately, you know, shoots the guy in the face as he yeah. gets, uh, as he gets a knife thrown into his arm like that's that's not g <laughs> that's not a no. rating at all no and it, that that's actually shocking that's in the 1934 version as well and it's equally shocking you know in that one but you realize you know he pulled the trigger only because a knife went into him yeah and that was like his response so automatic response yeah so but it's still anyway. it, it, it it's, it's disturbing pushing. it's it, yeah even like when you know they're they're holed up in their uh, little fortress and they're having to fight off the pirates. I mean, there's it's it's stressful. It's it's tense. There's, you don't yeah, know how it it's going to go. The one guy gets stabbed right through without the shirt on. I mean, it's it, it, there's a lot of yeah. intense moments. So yeah, I think there are. Yeah, I, I don't think they had a big uh, ground to fight on <laughs> when they <laughs> they got the PG slapped on it, but. Mm-hmm. I, I get it. It is PG, a little bit stricter, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But since the original Treasure Island story was in the public domain, director Byron Haskin made an independently produced sequel titled Long John Silver in 1954, with Newton reprising his role of Long John Silver. Newton went on to play Silver again in a 1954-55 television series, The Adventures of Long John Silver, and both of these projects were shot at Pagewood Studio Sydney, and the television series started before Australia had television. So I found that interesting. The 1950s, Australia still didn't have TV yet. I'm... I've not seen this film, Long John Silver. I've heard about it, but I have to do a search to see uh, if it's available for streaming, because I would like to see that. Yeah, if you find it, you let me know. Yeah. Orson Welles adapted the novel for his Mercury Theater on the Air radio program in 1938, and also appeared in the 1972 British-made film of the story, directed by John Hoff. Um, every review I've read of that 1972 version, it's not worth watching. Um, <laughs> it was a very low budget film, very bad production value, very poor production value. You know, I didn't read one positive thing about it, but Orson Welles really wanted to be Long John Silver. Wow. So, um, that's why it was made. A television movie of the novel, broadcast in 1990, was directed by Fraser Heston and starred his father, Charlton Heston. So before we get on to some of the other versions that we've watched, is there anything more you'd like to to say about Walt Disney's Treasure Island? Um, I don't really think so. I mean, I, yeah. I honestly, if you has, have still not watched it... Uh, Go ahead and give it a watch. It is oh, only yeah. an hour and 40-ish minutes, maybe like an hour and 35 even tops. Uh, and it, it flows through. Um, it's, it's very, very quick-paced. Uh, it, it just has that classic Disney movie feel to it that you expect from some of those, uh, some of the more classic live action ones and as well as the animated ones without it, 
uh, feeling like it's just dragging on too long. Uh, you know, like Pete's Dragon <laughs> thing is, <laughs> it takes me multiple watches to get through. It's just, it, it's a, it is, it's an early movie for, obviously, it's their first live action one. You can tell it's still early with a lot of the people working on live action movies in terms of trying to, to perfect the art. So it, it is choppy in ways that uh, I, I think is noticeable to a, a certain extent, but I, I mean, there's there's a lot to enjoy out of it. So definitely, definitely seek it out and watch it soon. It's a good summer movie as well. I, I was just going to say that this is such a fun summer movie to watch. Yeah, make the popcorn and have your Skittles, whatever your candy is. It is. This is just a good story, and it's a good film, and you're going to be drawn right into it. And there are some really good scenes. I was reading one where um, Byron Haskin wanted to film it. He was a great admirer of the uh, of the fir- one of the early versions of um, Great Expectations. And there's a scene in there where our hero. Um, meets up with some, I want to ruin it for you because that's another great book and another great film. But our hero meets somebody in a cemetery and it's dark and foreboding. And so Byron Haskin wanted to create that scene. So, and, and so what he did was he wanted that to be the scene when, um, the scene that we were talking about where, where Jim goes back to the, to Hispaniola and he's, he's injured and then he's heading back to the stockade. And there's that long dark scene that as he's traveling in the shadows and the, through the swamp and all of that uh, in order to get back to the stockade. And that was Byron Haskins tribute to the cemetery scene, uh, the churchyard scene in Great Expectations. Oh, so, um, yeah, that's really good. good. Now, what he was disappointed with in that scene is that for budget reasons, a second unit had to film it. And so the second unit director decided to have uh, Jim encounter animals and birds and crocodiles and all this stuff along his way. And then I think Byron Haskins said it was like he was encountering a zoo, a parade of animals. So he had to cut all of that out in order to get close to the scene that he envisioned. But it's really a good scene yeah. in the film. Um, very well done. Yeah. And the the second unit, for people who don't know as much with it, uh, you know, it's uh, picture this day and age with Steven Spielberg making a movie. Uh, he is not on set for every single every single take that happens with the main actors and stuff a lot of times yeah but you know when they need those uh, when they need uh more simple shots uh shots from potentially a different location um that don't necessarily feature the talent in a big way then that's when you start getting your your second unit if it's a big production a third unit and they're handling a lot of those shots that then tie together and you know the the hope would be that the directors seeing dailies and producers are seeing daily recaps of what what was shot so they have a good idea but if if you're also on a tight budget and a tight timeline you don't have a lot of time to go and completely redo things over and over again yeah you kind of have to live with the footage that you get mm-hmm. from it so um yeah that's uh, that's that's a tough position to be in with it and the the last thing i'll say in general with uh, with with treasure island is i think if you're also a fan of the pirates of the caribbean movies as well as the attraction 
I think this is one of the most important things that you can watch because mm-hmm. you, you can just see the inspiration that Pirates of the Caribbean took from this movie in particular. And I'm talking about the attraction, but then obviously the attraction was adapted so well into, into the first movie that like it just, it all lives together so well. And I mean, yeah, I know, I know it's coming from that source material of the book, but it just, it, it, it feels like, it feels like they're able to, Pirates of the Caribbean wouldn't have had the same life it does without Treasure Island. In my I opinion. absolutely, I absolutely agree with you. And that's why if you're a fan of Pirates of the Caribbean attraction, really watch Treasure Island and read the book because you can see they drew from the book and the novel to create the attraction. Uh, in there it's uh it's terrific i think it's an excellent observation now we come to 1996 kermit the frog miss piggy and tim curry embarked on their take of the story in a touchstone release muppet treasure island which was directed by brian henson it includes several musical numbers and downplays the mutiny piracy and violence craig you are i like the muppets you're a bigger muppet fan than i so what what's what are your thoughts about the muppets version of treasure island oh i absolutely love it um it is not it's not my favorite of the mm-hmm. the muppets movies and obviously you know of uh, taking taking literature and bringing it to life you know it it doesn't hold it it doesn't hold its own compared to muppet christmas carol but it's also a lot better than muppets wizard of oz uh but <laughs> i it is it, it's so much fun i mean i can remember seeing this in theaters cuz it released right around my birthday and so that was like i desperately wanted to see it for my birthday the music i kylie and i still sing it to each other to this day we watch it probably once every six months give or take uh it's just you know it's definitely not uh it's not super faithful in a lot of ways not in any ways Uh, it's faithful yeah it's (laughs) it's definitely a stretch but uh looking at it as an inspiration to say like oh you know if if your kids like watching muppet treasure island maybe give them a shot on the original i i think that's that's a good stepping stone it's a great way to to get introduced to the characters and the idea of the story and and not not really a, a scary way at all and mm-hmm. i mean tim curry as long john silver is just out of this world out of this world amazing and the you know the the, the songs yeah they're they're fun and uh i, I it it does show it shows a lot of the same issues as much as I think Muppet Christmas Carol is perfect. It does show the issues of not having Jim being involved for sure. And, you know, Steve Whitmire stepped up more. So obviously that means a lot more, uh, a lot more uh, Rizzo the rat, but I, <laughs> I, I still think it's something that if you, if you haven't ever watched it before, give it a shot. It's uh it's fun and dumb, and again, another good summer movie or a great movie if you're on a Disney cruise. I always yeah, do oh, that's true. Once. That's true. It's a fun film. It is. You're right. It is not my favorite of the Muppet um, films, and it's probably one that I, I would be a long time before I watched it again. This is the third version that I watched out of my four, and 
Um, there was just some of it, though. Oh, dear Lord. Miss Piggy's entrance and her role. And all that, 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 uh, oh, dear God, you ought to be kidding. But you know what? But this is, I think, though, where the Muppets are the best when they are recreating, um, literature, something like Muppets Christmas Carol and, and all that. I, I think they shine in that. The Muppets Haunted Mansion, that was another one. It wasn't based on a book, but they shine in those kind of roles. Yeah. Somehow. It just, it fits and it works well. And it's a great way when they don't have solid ideas for original Muppet movies or TV shows. I feel like it's a great way to keep the Muppets alive by Mm -hmm. uh, infusing them in that way. And I had, I had hopes for more because, uh, they, like, obviously Christmas Carol, uh, Wizard of Oz and Treasure Island, they had, had a nice little run with that. And then, it was a probably about six, seven years ago now. They released, um, they released two books that was like Muppets take on, um, uh, classic stories. And the one was Phantom of the Opera and the other was, uh, Grimm's fairy tales. And it was, oh. they're, they were meant for obviously, uh, kids to read and get introduced to, to classic literature, but mm-hmm. mixed in with like Muppets Insanity. And, uh, I, <laughs> you know, it's, they were almost hard to read in points because of how, how much of a, a younger age demographic they were aimed at. But, uh, I, I was so hoping that not only would that book series continue, but then they would start translating these into even if they were, you know, shorts, <laughs> like, uh, 30 minute length uh episodes that they would start doing these kind of um uh uh specials in that way mm-hmm. and obviously nothing's come from it but it yeah, is too bad. oh i would love to see muppets phantom of the opera yeah i and, think that would be a hoot yeah oh it is, it is oh it is. my gosh they had uncle piggy playing the... the phantom oh that's perfect and and miss piggy is the opera singer i assume and, and yeah that. <laughs> I think it was her. It was either her or Janice. I mean, obviously, they don't have a lot to choose from in terms of yeah. uh, female Muppets. But, but she would have to have the starring role. Yeah. But then the Stars Cable Network produced a series called Black Sales that ran from 2014 through 2017. It set approximately two decades before Treasure Island. So in this series, we meet Captain Flint a two-legged John Silver, Ben Gunn, and Billy Bones, as they battle the British fleet to gain control of New Providence Island and hunt for treasure with their pirate shipmates. I've not seen this series. I remember when it was running, but I didn't have stars um, at the time. Have you seen this series, Craig? Uh, Nope. I'm in that same boat as you. Uh, No pun intended. That I've I've actually wanted to watch this for a long time. It's just I don't have stars, and I never think about adding stars for for yeah. any reason so hopefully sometime it it's able to cross my path or you know maybe it'll end up on netflix or something i haven't searched yeah. for it to see if like they sold it for to netflix or something but anyway but i'm yeah i'm interested in, in seeing what they do here and get the backstory of these mm-hmm. pirates mm-hmm. then in 2002 Walt Disney Feature Animation released their 43rd animated film, Treasure Planet, which reimagined the Treasure Island setting from a tropical island to outer space. Uh, 
Animators use the technique of hand-drawn 2D traditional animation set atop 3D computer animation. This film was not a financial success, costing $140 million to create whilst earning $38 million in the United States and Canada, just shy of $110 million worldwide. But it received generally positive reviews from critics and audiences. It was nominated for Best Animated Feature at the 75th Academy Awards, but it lost to Miyazaki's um, Spirited Away. So, but... Now, I think you have a greater... Uh, this was the fourth version that I watched. I think you have a greater appreciation for this film than I do. Oh, I do not. I hate this movie. Oh, okay. I thought you liked it. No. I no. don't know why. Yeah, I, I'm i not impressed with this at all. It's so. nearly unwatchable. There's not a lot of... Uh, there's not a lot of Disney movies that are, you know, the actual original animated films that, that I don't like watching, but this is, this is one of them. And uh, I, as I was doing my rewatch of, uh, of Treasure Islands, you know, I, I obviously missed the first one that you were able to watch and I need to add that to my list. I watch Muppet Treasure Island so many times. I don't, I, I don't need to watch it. <laughs> I could <laughs> I could spell out every scene in it, and we just watched it on Podcast Cruise a couple weeks ago. So oh, um, it's it's fresh in my mind. But I I tried rewatching Treasure Planet before this as well, and I, I ran out of time. But I also just stopped paying attention and pulled out my phone. It's just I don't like the look of the animation. I hate the characters. I think some of the character designs good, but it was that weird time where I feel like they also didn't know what voices to pull and so it just there's there is something off about all of it and it's like it was such a fun story an adventurous story that they sucked all the life out of it for some reason and i you know i thank goodness it did not win the academy award just based on the fact that the disney name was on it but i i did look it up too and uh that was um that was it, it was a tough a tough one for animated films that year nothing could really go up against spirited away because the other nominees were lilo and stitch uh spirit stallion of the cimarron and then ice age and while you know ice age has had a life after it and so is lilo and stitch uh spirited away is a masterpiece and the rest are not <laughs> Yeah, but. yeah, I, I agree with everything you're saying on this. I just couldn't get my head around. They're on ships in outer space, but they don't need oxygen to be on deck. I, I, I just, it, that for me, I couldn't get beyond that. Yeah. And also, <laughs> so. like, it takes away all of the, you know, when they're, <laughs> I'm trying to like focus myself right now as I get so angry about this movie, but like where they lose me is when, um, when, uh, Long John has to, you know, eventually alter his plans and do a quick takeover of the ship and they get in this gunfight, but it's not a gunfight with muskets and, and, you know, small pistols that all need to be reloaded, uh, you know, one after another with the, with the flint and, you know, old old gun technology that was around back in the day they have lasers blasting out and it's like this why did they need to go 
undercover at all. They have more gun power. They could have literally just started blowing them all away from the beginning. <laughs> so it lost all credibility right in there. It's just, it's, what a bad movie. It's, yeah. I, I know they can't, they can't strike it from the record, but it, honestly, it might be my least favorite one because at least there's some things I think at least to like about Atlantis and even Home on the Range, but there's not a lot to like about Treasure Planet. Yeah, Treasure Planet is one. It'll probably be a very long time before I rewatch it again. I saw it in the theaters, and it didn't impress me. And I rewatched it, and it didn't impress me. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, there's some nice touching story lines, story lines in it. You know, Jim Hawkins' sort of journey. Uh, you know, as he deals with abandonment from his father and things like that. But it all just sort of gets lost in the mess of the film. He also looks too old in it compared to like Bobby Driscoll being young. And even, even the Muppet Treasure Islands, Jim is, you know, he's definitely older, but I'm like, something about in Treasure Planet, it, it feels like Jim could be 18 or 19. (laughs) <laughs> I think he was pretty close to that because when it opens, he's a little boy reading or, or looking at a storybook with his mother, and he's probably like six or seven there. And then it picks up what ten years later. Uh, yeah, so I guess that's pretty much right on. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, he's an older teenager. Yeah, and that's so. like, come on, you should have some more common sense with all of this. And if it's still <laughs> on the same beats as the as the story Treasure Island, then like. You, you should just be smart enough. You, you should understand that back in the days of piracy and, and Treasure Island, you'd already have a family and four kids by this age. So <laughs> I, I'm done. I'm done talking about okay. it. <laughs> okay. All right. So, so not, not at the top of our list of all the versions we're talking about here. But if it were not for the success of Treasure Island, Walt may not have produced the story of Robin Hood and his Merry Men and the Sword and the Rose in England, which focused on British legends and historical figures. Treasure Island was the beginning of the Walt Disney Studios' string of successful live-action films that included 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, uh, The Swiss Family Robinson, The Parent Trap, and Mary Poppins. So we hope that after hearing our story about the production of Walt Disney's Treasure Island, you'll be inspired not only to watch the film, and maybe a couple of the other versions we've talked about, but to read the novel it was based on with friends and family. And in a few weeks, we'll discuss another Walt Disney live-action film based on the novel. But now it's time for This Week in Disney History. Okay, Craig, I actually remember this time it is your turn to to start out. What what interesting history um, uh, tidbit are you, is your favorite this week? I, I think I've got a, a decent one. At least I felt like it was. And uh, mine comes from the ripe old year of 1961. And uh, I found out that on June 15th, of 1961 it's when they held the very first disneyland grad night party and Ah. uh, apparently there was 8500 students from uh, a bunch of high schools all over los angeles making it 
you know, a, a, the biggest grad party that's ever been held at the time. I'm sure they've gotten so much bigger than that. But the reason why I, I wanted to choose this and uh, found it so interesting is that because uh, in terms of the Disneyland After Dark events that they've brought back and that they were doing pre-pandemic, uh, they are getting ready on uh, the on June 23rd, 28th, and 30th. So just, um, you know days weeks after the very first one took place in 1961 they are uh, they're bringing it back and they're doing Disneyland after dark grad night reunion and uh the big difference is it's happening at DCA Disney California mm-hmm. Adventure versus Disneyland but it's they're doing one that's not just for obviously high school students it's anyone who feels like they want that grad night experience at the disneyland resort is able to buy tickets and go to it and uh you know it's the characters will be there wearing their grad graduation cap and gown outfits and they said they're either going to do like a whole bunch of um specialty food items like they always do for the parties but kind of based like almost in like high school junk food idea styles and uh i i it just something about it just uh really i was like that's kind of ironic that i knew this event was coming up at the end of june to find out that the very first one was held you know 61 years before like it's uh it's it's an accomplishment Mm -hmm. yeah jack lindquist that was his idea was the grad nights and people were concerned about alcohol and all that. And he made sure that, you know, it was strictly no alcohol. Young people had to get dressed up. Gentlemen had to wear suits and the young girls had to be dressed up in dresses and all that. And this, it was a huge event and it was popular for many years. They got a lot of support from the neighboring um, businesses who contributed like food and things like that. So for this one after dark, you said they're going to have like cafeteria food. Well, Disney already makes bad pizza. So they're all set. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how clever. Now I, it's, of course, it's their, uh, their, their take on bad food. Like apparently it's smoke jumpers. There's a burger, like a mac and cheese burger, which isn't uncommon anymore these days but then it's like the picture they showed of it had like melted cheese then poured all over top of it as well Ew. too it's like how do you how, eat that well i mean it's a knife and fork burger but the harder part is like you're gonna sit down you're gonna feel terrible for the rest of the night <laughs> you're not yeah, gonna want to really. go on on any rides or anything and i feel like that's the point with with of all of their after dark nights uh, that they've had themes for and such. This one feels like it's kind of the biggest stretch. So, uh, being in California Adventure, hopefully it's a way to get on Mission Breakout and Incredicoaster and some of those rides with, with very short waits because in terms of the entertainment, it's doesn't seem like there's a lot going for it. Oh, that's too bad. Grad Nights always used to have a lot of entertainment, the original Grad Nights. And they were after hours so that it didn't impact the guest experience during the day hmm. and um, went for the real grad night. So now they don't do that. And yeah. it's an experience. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, well, mine goes back to 1959, June 14th, 1959. This was basically what Walt called the, the second grand opening 
of Disneyland because the first urban monorail system in the United States, the Disneyland Allwake Monorails, began operation in there. It ran at that time on a little 0.8-mile track around Tomorrowland, so it was more of uh, a sightseeing ride. It would be a few years until they extended it, a couple of years, all the way to Disneyland Hotel and back. So, but also... The Matterhorn opened with the Matterhorn bobsleds, and we we just did a show on that um, not long ago. So it um, so that was great. And over in Tomorrowland, the submarine voyage ride was officially dedicated, and, although it had been open since June sixth. And so the Nautilus and the Seven Sister submarines, the Triton, the Sea Wolf, the Skate, Skipjack, George Washington, Patrick Henry, and Ethan Allen started their voyage um, to the North Pole. So there was a 130 special dedication parade that was designed for the activities. And this was all filmed, all the day's films were filmed for an ABC television special that was called Kodak Presents Disneyland 1959. And isn't that on one of, isn't that on the Disney Treasure series? I feel that like it show? is. Yeah. I know I've seen it and I, I, if I watched it in 59, I wouldn't have remembered much of it since I would have been not even three years old when this yeah. was dedicated. So, and there were uh, a celebrities visiting Disneyland that day. And that this is what I, I always find the celebrities fascinating. Well, of course, Ronald Reagan his, and his first wife, actress Jane Wyman, and their son, Michael, actress Haley Mills, uh, the music man, Meredith Wilson, and TV personality Art Linkletter. And he and, and of course, Ronald Reagan hosted Disneyland's television debut back in 1955. So, and all these new attractions would open to the public the following day. And as we talked about, I think we talked about the Matterhorn um, episode. It's amazing that they built all of this in a year. <laughs> I mean, that is astonishing. Three major attractions. Something that just just feels completely impossible these days. Yeah. And the thing is, on the same date, the year before, 1958, that's when they dedicated the sailing ship Columbia and the Alice in Wonderland attraction. So this is a busy time. Oh, yeah. For Disneyland. Yeah. Yeah. But some of my favorite attractions opened on June 14th, 1959. So, okay. So, Craig, for our next segment in a few weeks, next episode on uh, sort of our summer reading and movie-watching list. Which one would you like to tackle next? Mm, You know, part of me, I'm really feeling 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, too, because that... I am. It's Mm -hmm. uh, it's very... uh, It it is very summer-ish as well, too, in my opinion. Um, And maybe it's just because I'm feeling that uh, seafaring vibe after being on podcast cruise and after talking about treasure island but at the same time you could also look at what happens what goes wrong when you're on a ship and you end up deserted and you know all alone with your family and do something like swiss family robinson but uh i i, I think i'm voting for Twenty Thousand leagues so okay well let's do that in a few weeks and that also gives you out there uh an opportunity if you want to read the book in advance it's a great book and also if um, you want to watch the film you know and then we will all reconvene for our summer reading and uh viewing 
uh, in a few weeks film viewing and um, talk about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah. I also said it because I do have the book like within hand's reach right now, ironically. <laughs> so I was oh, just perfect. cleaning stuff out. So um, it was on my mind. <laughs> okay. That's excellent. Yeah. I'll probably, I know I have it somewhere, but I think it's packed in the garage. So I'll have to download it on my Kindle or something. Mm-hmm. So. But anyway, well, that is great. So um, I use several resources for this episode um, for books and magazines. Um, Walt, uh, the book Walt Disney and Live Action, the Disney Studios live action features of the 1950s and 60s by John G. West. This is a, a great resource. Um, he has a lot of good interviews in there. Um, websites. And some articles, online articles, included Treasure Island from Page to Screen to Cable by Christian Esquivan. Brit Movie History, The Legacy of Disney's Treasure Island by John Rabone. The Disney Wiki on Treasure Island. Real History, Treasure Island. Um, that's real, R-E-E-L. The AFI Catalog of Feature Films, uh, their Treasure Island um, page there. Old Hollywood Film Site on, um, they did an article on Treasure Island. And Treasure Island, Walt Disney's first live action feature film that's on the Walt Disney Family Museum, um, blog site. And then the New York Times review of Treasure Island. Also, I looked at, they actually reviewed two films in one article. And so, but they talk a lot about Treasure Island in that. So Craig will have all these links in our show notes. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on all the different shows I'm on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network. You can find me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. And you can uh, email me, Craig, at DisneyInfo.com. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling dash connecting with Walt. And Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. You can also connect with me and Craig on Twitter at connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. (laughs) 